Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today, my guest is Melanie Manetti. Melody is a principal dancer for Houston Ballet, and as you'll find out in the episode, Houston has one of the most accomplished ballet companies in the United States, making Melody one of the best ballet dancers in the world. But as we often do here on the show, we move beyond ballet very quickly, focusing instead on things like her experience and the lessons she learned along the way what she felt, what she thought while she was going through these experiences. And I think you'll find that beyond the wild talent, Melody the person is quite impressive. She's deeply introspective, she's intelligent, she can eloquently articulate her thoughts, and she is, more than anything, just kind, which I really appreciated. I really enjoyed learning from her experience as we walk through really a life that's been dedicated to ballet. We lingered on topics like perfection and joy and dedication, perseverance, judgment, and something Melody is very passionate about, which is the innate importance of movement in everyone's life. Melody, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you for sharing your time, your thoughts, your experience. I so enjoyed the experience. Ladies and gentlemen, Houston Ballet Principal Dancer, Melody Manetti. First, thank you so much for being here again. One of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is because I don't know much about ballet, and I don't think my listeners know much about ballet. And so today we're going to learn a bit of ballet, but we're going to spend a lot of time on you and the mentality behind that. But I'm insanely curious. I think most of us will be insanely curious about the pursuit, especially the dedication, the perseverance. And I think we're all going to walk away from this big fans of yours and big fans of ballet. And so what I learned preparing for this conversation is that Houston has one of the most prestigious ballet companies in the United States. We have some incredibly unique art taking place here in downtown Houston. We have some incredible culture taking place here in downtown Houston. And I'd love to see us explore that a little bit more. So in the pantheon of ballet companies, where do you see Houston Ballet? And what can you tell us about the level of ballet that's being performed here in Houston? So I moved here to dance with Houston Ballet. I'm from California. It was never on my radar to come and set up shop in Texas and be here for over 20 years. But Houston does have one of the best ballet companies in the country and in the world. So it's totally top tier. We draw dancers from all over the world. We have a super diverse population. And what we do at Houston Ballet, you know, we've changed directors since I came here originally and was hired by Ben Stevenson. And now our director is Stanton Welsh. But one of the things that has held is that we do some of the best rep in the nation, hands down. What does best rep mean? Yeah. So best rep means it's the dances that we do. You know, so we're doing usually half our season is the are these full length story ballets. That's the one that most people, if they don't know ballet too well, they'll know something about the Nutcracker or Sleeping Beauty because it shares these stories, children's stories or myths or whatever. But then the other half of the season, we're doing what we would call contemporary reps. And the people who make those dances, who are choreographers, we just get to work with the best of the best at Houston Ballet. So a lot of people come here for that opportunity. Would you say it's the most difficult ballet you're doing or just the most popular or both? Uh, It could be both. It's, again, diversity is big, not only within the population of the company, but with what we perform. So we're not a ballet company that's just sort of pigeonholed into, to be honest, just doing classical ballet. We do a lot of different type of movement and the movement that we're doing and the ballets that we're doing are coming from all over the place, choreographers from all over the world. So it's the kind of experience that a lot of ballet dancers want to have. Well, I think it's so exciting to learn that for me, even though I've been in Houston for nearly 20 years now, I said this earlier is that I'm from Austin, which has the best PR in the world and Houston has the worst. And I think (laughs) we need to tout our museums and our diversity and our art. 
So I'm so excited to hear this is going on and explore this a little bit with you. You grew up in Northern California. Mm -hmm. Now, were your parents into dance? Where did this fascination with dance start? No. So my dad is from Southern Italy and my mom is native to the United States, but kind of moved a little bit back and forth. Were, was your dad born in Italy? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm first generation on his side here. And my mom's from here, but between Arkansas and California, their family moved back and forth. The common thread arts-wise for them is music at family gatherings, both sides. There's a lot of music. There's guitars and singing and banjos and... <laughs> That's, the music typically leads to dancing. Dance, right? Yeah. I mean, and somewhat in my in my family of origin, I would say there was like some kind of dancing that went on, but nobody was trained in any form of dance. So that really was kind of my niche once I started that. And I I always was a mover. I always was dancing even before I received any training. I mean, grocery stores, anywhere, anywhere you would find me from a little, little just like moving especially if there's any music and what age did you start dancing seriously and please define what dancing seriously means with sure. schedules and things like that sure yeah i was nine when i started training ballet at a school in santa cruz that was like if you wanted to train ballet and like train in a proper branch of technique which there's a few but this one was vaganova which is one of the russian styles this is the school that you went to. And so my mom enrolled me for that. And when I was nine, I started. And yeah, I would say from the get-go, I could feel the seriousness of it. Even as a nine-year-old little girl, I was simultaneously very drawn to that. And also in some moments, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say repulsed, but maybe a bit of a misfit within that environment just because of who I was, who my family was. We definitely weren't on the rigid side and the like more structured side of things. Like I mentioned, my dad was Italian. So you were artists. We were artists. We were expressive. We were often loud. <laughs> and ballet's silent and ballet has a lot of rules. So I loved it. And to this day, I find, you know, like a sort of cultural dilemma for myself. Well, we'll explore that dichotomy in depth later. So hold some of those thoughts because that's one of the things that interests me is the art every one of you is an artist yet the rigidity of ballet and the perfectionism of ballet so hold some of those thoughts and we'll get into those was it pretty clear that you were a natural talent from a young age so i would say what was clear to me from the get-go was how much i enjoyed dancing i wouldn't say that i would equate that to a natural talent or having talent that other people recognized until that feedback came from outside of me. My best example of that is the first year that I auditioned for The Nutcracker. I was cast first cast, which me, which is the most prestigious place to be in ballet, as Clara, which was the best role that you could get as a young girl in that company. So that was a major validation. And the feedback was, okay, like we're going to put you in the best spot. And so, yeah, I started getting that that external feedback pretty early that there was something there that was wanted and that they thought I had some innate ability. Yeah, I think if we don't get some sort of reward, some sort of, I don't know what the word I'm searching for is, but some sort of feedback from those voices, influential voices, that what we're doing is pleasing, what we're doing shows talent, then it's very tough to continue even along with that joy. But I want to explore this decision to dedicate your life at nine years old to something and not just ballet this is something that i've thought a lot about for my career but i'm also the father of a five-year-old young girl she's enrolled in ballet and she's not far away from that age where to get where you want to go or to get to where you are you're dedicating your life to something at a very young age and for us my wife and i it would likely take a lot of pushing if we saw some talent in our daughter. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. It sounds like you didn't have to be pushed. You loved it. But what do you think about parents that see talent and decide that they're going to push their child because they want them to excel? Yeah, I think it's tricky. And I think it is very individual based on what kid you're talking about and what, what your kid is like, what their personality is like. 
I definitely think that pushing can lead to some stuff that'll backfire with kids, especially with something that they're dedicating their life to, right? So <laughs> you, you don't want to have that conversation 10 years down the line where it's like, I hate this and you made me do it. I mean, that's just as parents, I think we probably want to avoid those as much as possible, or at least I do. But there are kids that that do well with that sort of pushing might come as support for some kids. So again, I always think it's about balance. Anything that I'm thinking about or doing, I feel like it's always like, well, it's this and it's also this and we kind of meet in the middle. So I think for ballet and for especially for a career in ballet, your kid has to love it so much and have that enjoyment that's just part of them in order to Oh God, in order for it to be fulfilling for all that time and all that sacrifice and all that effort. So yeah, the pushing I think has to be balanced with the child's true desire to keep showing up to that. You know, when you're nine, how how do you know what you're going to want to do when you're 30? But they love that class. And if they love showing up to that, you probably don't need to push. So maybe the question is, why do you need to push? (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a beautiful question. Yeah, I tell parents the same thing because I'm in your position from the baseball side and coworkers will come to me and say, my eight-year-old is playing select baseball year-round. They're not wanting to play any other sports. And for baseball, that's not really necessary like it probably is in ballet. You can play other sports and I think it's advantageous for them to play other sports. But I, like you, spent all my time playing baseball as a youngster. I would sit on the bucket of balls when my dad came home at 530. Dad, let's go to the cage every single day. And to his credit, he always got off the couch and went with me. And the difference was, I like you loved it. In that case, I don't think burnout is really an issue. But I think that if you don't have that love, it can lead to a negative experience, even if your child is really, really talented, and then you may waste a talent. Well, let's Fast forward a few steps and talk about Houston. So at the age of 13, you started spending summers here in Houston. And then at 16, you relocated full time Mm -hmm. here to Houston, Texas. Explain to me how that works. I'd like to know, were you in school doing classes at the Ballet Academy? Were you attending a local high school? Where did you stay? What did all that look like? I was able to switch over to independent studies or homeschooling pretty young in California was pretty popular back then in that area of the country. And so I was a part of a collection of other families that was doing the same. And we would get together a couple times a week and do our organized sports and and different things together to socialize. But because of that decision, which didn't happen because of ballet, it was just a decision my mom made. But it ended up supporting that transition later on because I was able to learn at a more accelerated rate and then graduate early, and then even get a little bit of community college under my belt before I came here. So I didn't have to keep working toward my educational goals right when I was also trying to get a job. So that worked out pretty well for me. I just realized that. So you were actually not taking school when you came here in 16. You were done. I was I was done with high school, and I had already done a year of full-time community college. So it was college. full-time ballet. There were no studies to worry about. That's correct. Okay, yeah. I didn't pick that up earlier. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And once I got in the company, you know, we, we've had some different programs over the years to continue your higher education, like a class at a time or something. So I always would do that when it was offered because I, I love learning in all areas and think that's important for my own balance. So Were some I've of the girls that. having or girls or guys having to go to high school. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, now because of the age of a ballet career and when it starts, it does kind of crash into those high school years. Now with Houston Ballet, and I'm sure with some of the other bigger ballet companies that have a school attached, I think that they build that in more to to support those dancers that are coming and staying away from home so they can continue their education. But yeah, a lot of people were having to do both. And correct me if I'm wrong, but at 16, you moved by yourself. Your parents stayed in California. Right. Just me. For me, that would have been really challenging. Mm. The experience and the decision would have been challenging. And the reason why is because my friend group was so important to me. And so leaving behind those friends in my formative years would have been difficult for me. How was that experience for you? Yeah, it was really hard. 
I think that the distraction of like all this freedom rushing in for me as a teenager kept me from feeling some of that like deep homesickness and disconnection from that community. But I definitely experienced that in a lot of little micro moments. You know, I know they say that when there's the biggest impacts in someone's life, sometimes it's one big moment, but sometimes it's a lot of little moments along the way. So I I can sort of add those up and say that that was pretty hard. On the other side of the scale, it was exciting. It was really exciting and I felt like that was a time for me to know who I was and take my agency and really throw myself into something that I loved. So it was hard and for me it was it was really good especially for my career. What I was thinking of when I was preparing Melody is that you're a teenager, 16, 17, 18, even when you're becoming very successful here in Houston. But you're also this professional ballet dancer who is chasing a profession at its highest level, at its elite level, and you're competing with some of the most talented dancers in the world, maybe. Mm. I'm wondering how those two things played against each other. You're dealing with typical teenage angst. You're dealing with boys. You're dealing with fitting in. You're dealing with acne. You're dealing with all of these things, yet you're also on a track to become one of the most talented dancers in the United States. How do you think ballet influenced your social development during this time? You know, okay, I will start with one of the things that I am so grateful for about ballet is that for me, as long as I kept showing up, it kept showing up for me, right? So it kept giving back to me for things that I needed in my life. It provided me structure. It provided me fitness. It provided me an outlet, a physical outlet. Talk about angst, you know. You go in and you work that hard for that many hours and <laughs> you're not quite as angsty <laughs> It provided afterwards. you success too, positivity. and yeah. It sure did. But, you know, so I, I start with that and kind of lead with with the gifts of it. And then some of the gifts and lessons were harder too. Coming here at that time in my life, my body was changing. That might sound super simple and like, yeah, duh. But when you're wearing a leotard and tights every single day, which is mostly naked, and all of a sudden these changes start happening and there's an aesthetic that, you know, ascribes itself to being perfect. I don't even like that language to be honest because we're all so diverse and different in our bodies and that's we'll go into that maybe another time (laughs) but it was it was hard it was really really hard to come here at that age in a young woman's body having not only eyes on me during that time not only my own eyes on me you know going what's happening trying not to be super critical, but also like, how do I, what do I do now? But also having so many other eyes on me that, and this is going to be loaded for me to say, but in this culture, inherently have permission to criticize my body, which now I take, I take issue with, you know, quite a bit. What do you mean have permission to criticize your body? So because ballet is a physical aesthetic, right? So we're, we're athletes for sure, but we're also trying to fit into this like antiquated mold of, well, it, it's not completely from the beginning. Ballerinas didn't always look the way that we're, nobody wants to say this, but we're expected to look, quote unquote, until like the 60s, 70s when drugs came in and these like superstars were born and they were just as famous in this country as Hollywood stars at that time. And they were real thin. They were doing freaking tons of drugs and also being able to perform because of those drugs, but super unhealthy. And it just shaped a lot of people who are, who became in, well, who came into leadership in the ballet world. It shaped their idea of what the feminine form was supposed to look like, supposed to, right? I I would just say that the permission that I'm speaking of to criticize a body that doesn't conform to that is so unquestioned in ballet, right? It's changing now. I think it's slowly changing, but could probably like compare it to like the modeling world in that way where it's like, this is how you're supposed to look. You want the job or not? So there's there's an aspect of it 
that being a teenage girl, and I'm just going to say being an Italian teenage girl, does not, it doesn't match up. And so you get these choices. You know, you get a choice of, of course, I want the job. So how am I going to fit in? How am I going to like earn my place here? Um, or if you don't fit that mm-hmm. look, then all of a sudden it's a comment on your dedication Absolutely. or your perseverance or because you're not giving enough or you're eating. Yeah, I think that's such a trap at 16, 17 years old. Sure. One of the things I was thinking about is that maybe coming here in this unique environment with this challenging environment is that all the girls would just pull together and boys into this really unique tribe that supported one another. Mm -hmm. But then I also thought, well, you're also going for a couple of prestigious positions within the company, so maybe it was competitive. How did that play out? More on the competitive side, for sure, at that time. I would say one of the things that I love about Houston Ballet now is that it looks more like what you described first, I think, that we really band together, we really support each other. Among the dancers, it's an amazing community of support. And that's rare, I think, in the ballet world. Not all companies are like that. And so I, I highly value that here. And I like to think that I'm part of that. I'm I was just about to say, I think it's people like yourself willing to put a microphone in front of your face and say these kind of things. <laughs> because honestly, teaching a young girl, young boy to dance, that's a lot of fun. And talking about these roles that you had at such a young age, that's a lot of fun. And we're going to do that more. Yeah. But where are they going to learn? Where are they going to feel like they belong and they're included when you're being vulnerable and you're saying, hey, I went through this and you're giving back? I think that's pretty special. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And I, there's a lot of people that came before me that I've gotten to have placed in my life who are doing that work publicly, who are doing that work more internally through therapy processes or workshops or writing books, you name it. Like I've had especially these strong women just placed in my path along the way that have helped me to find my voice in that and helped me to find what do I want to bring from my learning back into this ballet environment. Well, hold those thoughts because we're definitely going there. I definitely want to get on what you plan to do towards the tail end of your career, which is probably a long way away. But you then become part of the company at age 17, which I understand is very early, maybe earlier than some of your peers, then a soloist at 20, 21, principal dancer shortly after that. Again, I don't know much about ballet paths, but that seems like an accelerated timeline. Is is that what it felt like at the time? Yes and no. It felt, well, speaking of competitive, right? So I do have a very competitive nature. You have me. to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, and so I was like kind of keeping track of like the principles that came before me. So, yeah, it was on the faster track, but it didn't like beat anybody's record. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was faster, but also that that does happen for some principal dancers. Were you ready for it, ready to take on lead roles? And maybe this is a bad word choice, but lead a company in a production? In s- and more mentally than physically. Yeah, in so many ways... Yeah, I was hungry. I was hungry for it. And so I I felt ready in that way. For me, life is so interesting and timing is so interesting. And so I had my son pretty early in the company. So I became a young mother in a ballet company, which is also a bit of an anomaly. Were Um, you like 20 years old, I believe? mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so... You know, the the director who just took over that time, who we have now, Stanton Walsh, is really supportive of family and mothers, which is like, man, brownie points, you know, for sure. I was pleasantly surprised by that. But my life outside of ballet became quite complicated and messy right around the time, well, more so right around the time that I got promoted to principal. So yeah, I would say I was ready and on this like, trajectory and then life threw me some major curveballs well let's talk about having a child at 20 i had my first child at 33 and i was scared shitless (laughs) so i can imagine being a 20 year old who's starting to achieve your dreams it had to be exciting but also a bit scary where were you mentally at that point were you excited were you scared were you both were you worried this may affect my career or did those powerful voices in leadership make you feel pretty comfortable that you had a position? Yeah. So 
I was pretty surprised by myself, to be honest, at that time. I I always think the biggest driver for me in ballet, I, I liked the external validation. I liked succeeding, you know, in, in other people's eyes and being offered opportunities. Obviously, that created momentum. But my internal validation has always been stronger and it has always been the thing that will win over, I would say, the un, unpredictable external kind of side of things. I've always had that. So when I became a mother, my internal like passionate self, like my soul was like, this is the most important thing. And it was instant. And so, and I know that that's not, I'm not saying that that's a model of motherhood by any means. That's just what happened for me. That's and, what happened to me as a father. It's, yeah. They're, my two girls are easily, I would drop anything for them. Yeah. I yeah. Get it. So I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to go back. I don't know how I'm going to make money. <laughs> this is all I've ever done. But I was so taken and just felt the not only the responsibility, but that huge love of This is what you parent. were born to do. Yeah. And I'm great at this. That's what I feel. I tell people, I was like, I don't know how this sounds, but I'm great at this. I don't know if I'm great at anything else, but I am great at being these two girls' dad. And it sounds like that's what you felt. That's awesome. I would say when my son was a baby, for sure. It got a little more complicated in like toddler years and beyond. Well, I was like, me, I think I'm keep, terrible at this. Let me keep this vision of these perfect little girls. I've got I've yeah. got a ways to get to teenage years, but yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what made you say, I'm going back and I'm going back to the top of my profession? I, I mean, it's it's hard to be honest about the answer to that because it was it was logistics. It was practicality. It was that's how I knew how to pay bills. This is what I know. This is what I know. Yeah. And it wasn't like, oh, I just love ballet and I'm so committed to it. And that is so counterculture to ballet culture. It's like ballet is God and even parenting, it must. And, and I will tell you, parenting did end up, I missed a lot when my son was young because it's such an intense schedule and commitment. But that shifted for me and ballet was no longer and would never again <laughs> be God for me. But I got to start building a new relationship with it and I got to start rebuilding my technique even because I took time off and talk about body changing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was this beautiful but hard path of like, so why am I doing this? You know, if I love this more and I, and I find such purpose in having this being that I'm responsible for, that I love more than anything in life, then where does that leave ballet for me now, especially if it's going to take me away from him? So I I started down a very different path of my relationship with this art form that I loved. That well, I, you know? I think the interesting thing, Melody, is you've proven the model. You've proven it can work. You've now been the principal dancer for Houston Ballet for over 20 years with this model. And you can now be one of those voices that say, yes, you can dedicate your entire life to ballet. Ballet can be your deity, but there is another path if you want it. And I can show you that path. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that there's more than one path. Well, let's go back to this idea of perfection, because I think you may be the perfect guest for this topic. All athletes, all high level performers focus on perfection and perfectionism to some extent. But it appears from the outside looking in, at least from this novice perspective, that ballet uniquely prioritizes perfection. I think about the movements and the timing and the facial expressions and the emotion. It seems everything is scrutinized down to this minute level, which correct me if any of that's wrong, but that's what I see. No, and, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and, good, because I have my unique own relationship with perfectionism. And I find it can be positive. It can it can actually be largely positive, but it has its negative side. So I want to explore both of those with you. I used to keep this quote up in my office from Vince Lombardi. He was a coach of the Green Bay Packers long ago. That's not really important. But he said, we should chase perfection, knowing that it's unattainable, and we'll end up catching excellence. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so great. But I think where the negative comes in is when you forget that second line that it's unattainable. When you start to think that the goal is to catch perfection instead of excellence, that's where we get in trouble. So take this however you want to take it, Melody, but what is ballet's relationship with perfection? And then 
second question, what is your relationship with perfection? And if you want to talk how that evolved, go for it. I think that, and I don't mean to knock ballet, but I am going to a little bit. Ballet has a superiority complex, right? In the field and realm of movement and dance. So it's like, there's this sort of like, like this is the, the highest. I, I heard it growing up, right? Like this is the highest form of dance. It's the highest art form. It's like, it's the pinnacle of physical fitness mixed with artistic expression. It's just like the, the mecca, right? And I even think like even our audience are the highest form of intellectuals kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's a supremacy thing for sure. And so I know that part of what informs my relationship to perfection are my roots, right? I think that all of us, we have these roots and, you know, I'm very, I'm a nature freak. And so we become these trees, right? And our roots inform that. And so I have often felt very rebellious against that idea and fought very hard against it. And yet I'm internalizing it all the time in this field and needing to conform to it in order to achieve success, in order to fall in line and be what people want me to be. Give me an example of rebellion. What would a rebellion look like in terms of dancing ballet? <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Well, and some of it's not even conscious for me, right? So I, okay, ballet's silent, right? Ballet etiquette would dictate that you don't talk back, that you don't ask questions unless they're a certain kind of question, right? That you don't question the feedback that you're getting from your coaches and say, ah, it doesn't really work for me. Okay. <laughs> so it's this real tamping down of your internal voice. And that's a way that I not always, but pretty early, was like, I have something to say about that. And also, I may have not said that doesn't work for me. I may say that now, but you could see it on my face <laughs> that, that that it's like, I'm trying your way and it's not doing it, anything for me. So I think that I always pushed back against the the cookie cutter mold and had thoughts and opinions that maybe I expressed to friends, but now I express more openly that like, I really think there's more than one way here. And I really think that this body type looks different when it does this move than this body type. And her power comes from that part of her anatomy, but hers comes from there. So we can't say every single person has to do it this way because it's not going to achieve the same result anyways. And maybe there's beauty in the way you do it, but there's a different type of beauty in the way someone else does it. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, that I think that's one way. I think that <laughs> it's it's also little ways, right? Like now in our just regular outside world culture, we call it like ballet world. We say inside world and outside world. Tattoos are popular, right? I started getting tattoos when I was like 21, 22. It was not a thing. That was a rebellion, right? That was me sort of saying like, this is my body, not yours. <laughs> And now I look around the room and like plenty of people have tattoos and I wasn't the only one, but especially for a woman, there were not maybe any or many and especially not for a principal woman. So there's these little ways that I think it harkens back to what I was saying earlier. Sometimes it's little micro moments where you're sort of taking back some agency and saying perfection squashing me. And I'm still an artist here. And so I need to be able to also express and have a voice. That's important. Absolutely. I think that's beautifully said. Let's talk about something that I see as parallel with perfection is judgment. And again, this is something all high-level performers deal with. You're asking for it to some extent. And to be honest, Maybe judgment's a bad word, but critique is something we need to improve, especially when you get to the pinnacle of success. You need someone giving you that feedback. So I want to talk about your relationship with, with judgment. I did read recently that you say even at this point in life, you still fear judgment, yet you're in an environment where I think it's amplified to some mm -hmm. extent. So mm -hmm. Can you just maybe explain that a little more and then tell me how you think about judgment and maybe 
where it's helpful and where it's not helpful? So I don't think that judgment, and I guess it depends on how you say it, but I don't think that judgment of another person is almost ever helpful. I I think that maybe somebody could, you know, philosophize and bring some sort of counter argument to that, sure. But I think in general... Are you separating judgment and constructive criticism? Are you saying those are distinct differences? Yes, because I think that with... We should probably define terms. Yeah. Yeah. I think that with constructive criticism, there has to, has to, has to be an element of curiosity. I think that judgment does not leave room for curiosity. And in curiosity, we have a lot more room to collaborate to actually explore what's at the root of whatever's going on, right? So if I have a judgment, I can shift that into having some curiosity about why am I having that judgment or why don't I like it when I see her do that that way? Like if I'm on the other side of the room and I'm teaching or I'm choreographing, I can be like, uh, that didn't look right. Okay, that's a judgment, but what do I want? You know, I just think it's important to dive deeper below the judgment, otherwise we get kind of stuck and judgment often feels like an assault on the ego <laughs> or or on even on someone's like hard earned work and dedication and so i find i find judgment to not necessarily be the same as true constructive criticism when someone is curiously coming to me or someone else and saying like okay what's going on with that like let's talk about that To be honest, one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm in the other side of the room and I'm leading or running a class or rehearsal or whatever is, how did that feel for you? I will ask a question first. And usually it's like, well, it felt like crap, you know, or something where I'm like, okay, so let's talk about why. And and I can provide my feedback, but I'm not setting myself up as the expert on another person's experience. I have mine and they have theirs. Yeah, and I'm hearing you speak a lot about judgment of others, but I'm finding it interesting to kind of think of what you're saying in terms of self-judgment and self-criticism. How can I be more inquisitive, more curious when I'm judging myself? Because I think oftentimes as a high-level performer, you're dealing with that as much as outside expectations. You're dealing with internal expectations and not meeting those. How can you show yourself more grace, more patience, more curiosity. Yeah. What do you tell young dancers about dealing with external judgment? I tell young dancers a lot to go inside, to go internally and to ask themselves and to create space for themselves to experience even the same correction that they're getting in a room where everybody's looking at them and someone's saying, do it this way, not this way. You got to feel that. You have to be able to feel it for yourself to even understand how you're going to truly apply those corrections for yourself because it doesn't stick when someone just says, just do it this way and then you're like, do it this way, do it. I mean, at least for me, it doesn't stick, especially if you go into another room and someone else wants something else, which happens really frequently. So I tell people to connect to themselves and I give exercises for people to connect to themselves. And one of the reasons I do that and it goes back to balance again, right? So I think that the a lot of ballet culture is has an imbalance towards that rigidity, towards that, again, I have permission to judge you and criticize you. And no matter how it comes out, it's my job to do that. Regardless of does it hurt that person? Does it even feel like connected and coordinated to that person? Is that truly how they're going to execute that with the most power for their proportions. It goes back to curiosity and balance. So I try to, what I see, I try to kind of go the other direction and say, okay, I know you're getting a lot of this kind of feedback. What if you were to go and do this really weird thing where you're ju- it's just you and you, <laughs> you know, because we're, we're very performative in ballet. So it may, it may be kind of different from some sports maybe there's more time with yourself but in ballet there's not a lot of time that you get to just be with yourself in that process interesting yeah what i'm hearing is the the delivery is important not Mm. only to others but to yourself and learning the difference between constructive criticism and unhealthy berating 
mm. of oneself or unhealthy berating of another one. And I think once you understand that difference, then you can embrace the constructive nature of criticism and yeah. those that are willing to give it because it is really important. But if you can learn the difference, you can grab on to the constructive part and separate yourself from the non-healthy part. Yeah, and one thing I would want to add to this conversation or this part of the conversation that we're having is what you said about the self-judgment and the self-criticism. And I honestly think that for me, I don't know where you read that I'm scared of judgment, but it's true. And for me, that starts with how harshly I have judged myself for so long. So the way for me to bring in curiosity is to learn how to give that to myself. Because if I'm waiting around, I mean, it's great to look for more healthy environments, work environments, et cetera. But I'm with myself when I go home. I'm with myself, you know, a lot of the time outside of the studio. And so if I'm not learning how to speak to myself in that way, I'm still going to have that pressure. And so I do think it's an internal job. And then maybe we bring the gentleness from the inside out. And a lot of the people that rail against being criticized and judged, I have found, including myself, are the people that are the hardest on themselves. So they're like, they're like, my bucket's full. Don't judge me anymore. <laughs> well, I forgot where I found it, but I, I Google my guests more than they'd be comfortable with. But <laughs> that's something that I cling on to because when I see that someone at the pinnacle of their game being vulnerable like that, I think it would confuse a lot of people. Go, wait a second. You're in a profession that's known for their judgment but you fear judgment yeah. but for me i think it's inspiring mm -hmm. to see someone say that mm -hmm. i really do let's tie in something that i know you're passionate about here you say that you believe the joy and the enjoyment of dance is innate that movement is innate and that is what's most important to you which i think again ties into all sport is why we really do it talk a little bit about that and how do you learn to build that innate joy where you started dancing at four or five yeah. into your professional life in your mid-30s yeah okay so now i have to geek out just a teeny Do bit because it. it's the perfect moment so i think the stories we tell are really important and the language we use is really important and i was curious to look up the definitions of sport and dance and i was like dumbfounded so in on the miriam webster the essential meaning of sport is to play in a happy and lively way. Full definition, to amuse oneself, to engage in sport, to mock or ridicule something, to speak or act in jest. Everything's playful. Every single definition of sport is playful. I love that. That's amazing. Me too. I've never I was, looked it up either. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I had either. And so I was like, oh my God, no wonder we love this. No wonder we love going to sports. No wonder. Yeah, it's serious. Yeah, you're training. But it is, it's, it literally is play. You're playing a sport. Now you flip over to dance. <laughs> and I was like, I wanted to cry. I was like, how is this possible? So when I think about dance, I think about little kids. I think about being a parent, having a kid, looking at pictures of myself. Kids are freaking crazy and I love them. And they just like, they move and they wiggle and they do all sorts of dancey things from the moment that they can, even before they can stand up, right? So that's what, that's why I say dance is <laughs> intrinsic to every human, whether you think you're a dancer or not. Here's the definition. Definition of dance. One, an act or instance of moving one's body rhythmically, usually to music, an act or instance of dancing. Two is, is a similar definition, series of rhythmic and patterned bodily movements, usually performed to music. So I missed it, but I missed taking the screenshot of that. But the, the next definition was performing, right? So it, it yeah, it's okay. It just had performance tied to it. And... There's nothing about playfulness in these definitions, in these stories that we've written in the English language, right? And I was like, that blows me away because I love dancing ballet, but I love dancing any kind of dance. And 
communities. Check out her Instagram if you want to know that. She sure does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So dancing in community for celebration is something we do really well. Dancing for ceremony is not something that's so tied to Western culture, but dance is prayer historically in many, many, many cultures. It's sacred. And for this to become something that is simply performative breaks my heart and gives me some sort of something to say like, that's not why I got into it. And that's not why I did send you a YouTube video. Maybe you can link it. But that's not why we dance. That's not why as humans we dance and we move. The other reason that I feel so passionately about this is because I think that the reason that we dance and move, if you watch these videos of babies doing it, it's one for connection because they're dancing for the connection to ourselves, number one. And then you start looking around and you're like, you're going to dance with me? Are you laughing? It's connection with others as well. So it's about relationship. And two is for enjoyment. You know, we dance to like viscerally feel the experience of life, whether it's happiness, whether it's angst, whether it's whatever. We move through life. I just think we've done ourselves a disservice to make dance be performative. Yeah, I I love this line of thought. Let's walk it for a while. I I think the moment it becomes performative for me is when it's not fun because (laughs) then my insecurity comes in. It's like if I'm dancing in this room by myself and someone walks in, it turns into a performance and now it's not fun. And yeah, I think that that is such an amazing observation. You mentioned you were inquisitive earlier and I love that you brought that. And I think even though the definition of sport is so much better, that's something we lose as we pursue it at a higher and higher and higher level. And coaches lose it as they, I've been hammered by most of my coaches growing up and that was just the way it was. And I know you say ballet, it's maybe a bit different level. They don't drop F-bombs at you all day long, or maybe they do, but (laughs) they do. Okay. (laughs) Apparently they do. But I think that that is such an amazing thought, lesson, bit of advice, wisdom. How do you learn to build that into your professional life? Do you stop once a week and think about those kind of things? Do you structure time with your friends and your tribe to do this? How do you not lose sight of that? So for me, and I guess I would ask the same thing for you, you know, as a as an athlete in another discipline, once it becomes performative and once it becomes you're living or whatever and you've had all those F-bombs thrown at you and you have to perform and you have to deliver, how do you bring it back to just sitting on that case of baseballs and just throwing and just feeling the exhilaration of that? We've talked about that a couple of times on this podcast now that you asked that. My answer would be leadership. Mm. It has to come from leadership. So Lance Berkman sat in the seat you sat in and he confused the hell out of me. Here's a guy who made $100 million playing baseball, six, seven-time All-Star, <laughs> World Series winner. And he said, I didn't enjoy p- playing professional baseball. Philip Umber sat where you sat. Again, millions and millions of dollars professional baseball through a perfect game, said, I didn't enjoy playing professional baseball. Those things confuse me because you think, why wouldn't you be having a wonderful time? And I think it is losing that, but also... Coach David Pierce sat where you sat, who's the head coach of the University of Texas baseball team. And one of the things he said that I really enjoyed and I thought was so profound is he learned late in his career that his job is to free players up, that once he sees effort, there's no more hammering anyone. It is freeing people up because he knows that this jovial, even joking, silly environment is where talent thrives. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's right, coach. That's brilliant. Is because when you're getting hammered on, when you're worried about expectations, when you hear someone say, if you make one more mistake, you're going to lose your position wherever it may be, that's not where talent and ability thrives. Mm -hmm. It thrives in that childlike kid playing around. And that's why I don't know how big a fan of baseball you are. But the best player now, players nowadays like celebrate their home runs to the point where it gets a little over the top. But <laughs> what I see is they are 
in just complete childlike mode Mm -hmm. and their talents thriving. So I think to answer your question, that was a long winded way to say it's got to come from leadership. You have to have a principal dancer or a director or a head coach Mm -hmm. that is willing to create that environment is my my answer. And my my challenge to that is what if you don't have that? My challenge to that is what if you don't have that in leadership? Is there a way to create it in the subculture? I think it's harder, but um, I have this conversation all the time. I think it's hard to find leadership in ballet. Maybe not now, but that is inherently playful. I mean, just look at the definition of dance in the dictionary. It's like it's not supposed to be like that. It's performative. And so for me, I sort of fell into this little rabbit hole which I'm super grateful for, where I have always been seeking out, for one reason or another, a sense of belonging, right? We're supposed to all inherently know that we just belong, even in these hard situations, even on the sports team, like, yeah, 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 but I'm a human, I belong here, right? But I always felt like I was seeking it out and valuing it so highly that sometimes the connection piece with other people overtook or circumvented that perfection piece and so I was I was at odds so why I say it was a rabbit hole is that that's been a theme in my life and I eventually fell into a place where needing to do my own work to be like okay how do I find that home within myself to be frank I'm I'm not really getting it from my career which I'm spending so much time there how do I find this for my mental health for my well-being within myself I had leadership from a different place, right? I had leadership from an incredible trauma therapist who does embodiment work. And I was in a room with women in Hawaii (laughs) where nobody, well, that's not true. There were a couple other like women who had trained dance at some point, but nobody was like a professional ballet dancer. And I was like, oh my God, I can't, what the heck do I do? We were doing nonlinear movement. In fairness, I think you're a pretty rare breed. (laughs) But, but. (laughs) But what do you do? when that skill and performative quality is only going to create more disconnection? What do you do when you're trying to heal a collective trauma in a room full of women where we're going to move? And nonlinear movement is super vulnerable. I'm not totally following. It's going to create disconnection because your talent level is better than theirs. Explain that to me. I think for me, it's sort of this like, I didn't want to become a spectacle. Right. So it's like, let's get into a room and do this vulnerable thing together. We're going to put music on and we're going to move with our bodies. And it would be very clear that you stuck out in your movement. Yeah. And you're no longer part of the group. You're now, here we go, performing. Exactly. And how do I, like, how do I move like a person who, like, how do I move authentically? And the fact that I was a professional trained dancer and that I was, and that I was like, how do I even do this? How do I dance like a kid again? Was so hard. And so I know that was a really winding way to get to your question about how do I come back to that childlike place of movement? One of my practices is moving in this way that is not structured. And a lot of times it's by myself. And a lot of us do this, right? Like we're in, I hope that a lot of us do this, that we like turn the music on in the shower or wherever and you just let your body like tell its story and do your body's thing that is so valuable and for me I have to balance out all of this rigidity and all of this training and all of this demanding that I do of my body through movement with authentic expression otherwise talk about burnout with joy yeah yeah my wife and I talk about that sometimes if we're having a particularly stressful week with the kids or something we've often we've had times where we're going like when's the last time we just played music while we were cooking dinner and we're like oh we hadn't done it in a week well there you go and as soon as you turn that on you're right there's something innate about the rhythm and the beat that turns into dancing our two girls start dancing and it changes it changes the environment within our own household and sometimes we lose grasp of that but to answer your question what if you don't have that director or have that head coach Mm. this even thinking it sounds like hubris but i'd like to think that's what we're doing is here you go you can listen to melody on this podcast whether you're in paris or new york or seattle and this could be your leadership this could be your outlet 
And I like to think that's what I'm doing with a lot of these athletes is providing, again, it just sounds arrogant, but like, you know, some sort of leadership, some sort of space where this can take place and you can hear someone who's as successful as you are be vulnerable and as successful as you are explore these ideas in real time and kind of stumble over them and then we end up kind of finding something i think Mm -hmm. that that maybe the answer is create more spaces like this and it doesn't have to be recorded and put on apple it could be just a circle of your friends Mm -hmm. so i mean i think that's totally right and i think like it's the importance of story right like the we're exploring maybe kind of a different story here i also think it's interesting that you brought up joy and your family and it's funny when we talk about responsibility i immediately think okay as an adult what am i responsible for and i think of bills i think of as a dancer i think of like well my training i got to keep my stamina up i got to keep my strength up i got to show up in my form and blah 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 but who's talking about our responsibility for joy in our life. We're the ones who have the responsibility for that, not anyone else. And so it's, it's just interesting that gets into like our value systems. And I do think it's important to be talking about this and saying like, yeah, but who's responsible for your joy? You gotta feel good of <laughs> what thought you're doing too. We've been touching on this throughout, but you very recently posted a pretty powerful post about what ostensibly look to be body image. Mm. But for me, it was clearly about much more than that. And if you're willing, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper there. Maybe we start here. I, I assume you know your body on a level that few of us can understand. Its strengths, its weaknesses, its limits, when to push beyond those limits. How has your relationship with your body evolved as a dancer, maybe as a human from that young girl to where you are now? So I think that I, I do feel like I have a pretty high like body intelligence and awareness of my body and its weaknesses, strengths, limits, like you said. And a lot of that is from dance. And some of it might just be natural that I just am – I am kinesthetic. I'm a kinesthetic learner. And I think that what ballet gave me was sort of like a one-way communication to my body so it was like oh I can tell my body what to do like I can control on on some level like I can greatly control this body that I've been given and that's amazing but what has happened for me in going into other routes of learning in adulthood especially is that I realized that I hadn't been given an ear for my body to listen to my body. So much of ballet is actually kind of dissociative, like from pain. A lot of the stuff we do is really painful. We, I dance on my toes, <laughs> right? Doesn't feel good. And so you learn just by necessity to not listen to that. And so it's it becomes a one-way communication, right? It's like, and so my word for that is it becomes quite demanding. And eventually that stopped working for me and I needed to find that reciprocity again. It might not be the same for everyone, but that was definitely that way for me. And that article just sort of like the one that you're referencing was me exploring, like, how did I get here? You know, how did I get to this place where I felt so sort of objectifying of my own body? Like we say, my body is my tool. My body's my vehicle. My body is my, is me also that's been an important shift for me again I I started working with some different like strong women in my life on a healing journey so I have a holistic doctor in town I'm friends with a woman who's like a brilliant trauma research therapist in Canada I, I work with a woman in town who's an indigenous leader so I have all these different perspectives coming in that are so different from what I learned and that gave me the tools well let me read a quote from that article you wrote and maybe i'll tell you what i took from it and i'm curious to say if that's what you intended to communicate here but you wrote my body is wise my body is fierce my body is resilient it never lies but your mind does we all need to learn from the wisdom of our bodies and what i took from that melody is that as high level performers we learn to do what our mind tell our our body learns to do what our mind tells it Mm -hmm. to do 
And we learn to turn off those messages that our body is sending and override them with messages of our mind. And I think we, we've learned that that's what it means to be strong is ignoring those symbols. And oftentimes I think that's true. It's certainly an asset as an elite performer to turn off the signals your toes are sending you when you're dancing on point. But sometimes the opposite is true. And I think that's what you're saying is oftentimes that's true. That is being mentally strong. But sometimes the opposite is true. And you use the word learn. And I really kind of grabbed onto that that word because I think what you're trying to say there, at least for me, was you have to take the time to learn the difference mm-hmm. between what's strong and when it's strong to do the opposite of what it looks like to be strong. Yeah. Is that kind of what you were saying? Did I have that pretty close? Yeah, I think so. When I think about a strong muscle, a strong muscle is not just a tight muscle. It's also flexible. When muscles get too tight, they become weak, even if they're huge and even if they look strong. And I think this is what we're kind of talking about. There has to be balance. If strong is the mind overcoming pain and all of these these things and it's like wow like that's what we think strength is then what's sitting on the other side of that when you're done what's your recovery like what's your rest like what's your nurturing of yourself like because god it's just it's everywhere it like overwhelms my brain it's like saying sunlight is all that plants need but not water there's always this balance we need nurture and we need structure and you just need that balance. And I, I don't know. That's that's what comes to mind for me is that I see over-relying on the mind as an imbalance. Absolutely. And sometimes being strong is saying I'm not going to ignore that pain. For sure. And I am going to pay attention when it says I don't like this feeling or I don't like this cadence, yeah. whatever it may be. I think that's really interesting. Well, and I love talking about the body as as a voice. And I know this might sound weird <laughs> to some, no. but as like a two-way conversation. So maybe think between the mind and the body. But if you, sometimes people perceive strong, you meet people like this as I'm going to say everything and everyone's going to listen to me and I'm going to tell you what this room is, period, I'm gone, right? I don't think that's strong. I don't think that's strong leadership. I think that's imbalanced and I think it leads to illness. <laughs> and I think in our bodies, when we treat our bodies that way, and it's not a two-way conversation, it's the same deal, right? It's not, hey, my mind has all these ideas. Okay, maybe we need you to not, we need to overcome this pain in the toes for a while, but I'm going to listen to you as well. And at the end of this, I'm going to hear what you have to say. Oh, you need an ice bath. Oh, you need, I mean, I'm trying to like make it very practical, mm-hmm. but it has to be a communication between like your whole self rather oh, than... I like the line of thought you were going on there. I think reframing the word strength is important because mm. sometimes those classic definitions of strength are important and those are certainly assets. And I really, really enjoy being physically strong and pushing yeah. my body beyond its limits as you do. Mm-hmm. But sometimes being strong is sitting in a room and being quiet and saying nothing. And that's really hard for someone as verbose as me, (laughs) but that I love reframing that and clouding that view. As I like to say, longevity is something that you have obtained again, 20 years as the principal dancer for Houston ballet. Is that one of the mental traits that you think has led to that longevity? I mean, I always think that like, my learning is so recent. And then sometimes if I go back and read journals or see see myself talking or things I've said, then I realize, oh, I've been trying to learn this for a long time. So maybe. I also just feel like the odds have been in my favor a bit. And I'm really grateful for that. And I can't say why that is. I like to think that maybe I've gotten to do this for as long as I have so that I could do this learning, so that I could pass this wisdom on of like, You know, maybe if I would have stopped after I had my son Isaac, I wouldn't have had this like long timeline of, oh, what does that do over time? That kind of approach. And how am I going to balance that out? Because that's unsustainable. So I don't know. Maybe maybe this mindset has always been like a seed in me, but it definitely wasn't up at the surface for a long time. Well, it sounds like (laughs) curiosity is a trait that's maybe led Mm -hmm. to it and continuously improving, which I think those are linked 
at the hip. The smartest people in the world are typically the most curious. And well, let's end it here, Melody. I know you're going back to school while you dance to eventually give back and to help young dancers avoid some of the mental and emotional setbacks you faced. When you sit down with young dancers, what are the lessons, the kind of the pillars of the lessons that you try to share? I tell people to be gentle with themselves. I tell people to pay attention to moments that they really love and enjoy. I ask people what their favorite moments are in class. Like, what's your favorite step to do? Because I I want to empower people to harness this, like, life force of passion and joy and to value it alongside the hard work where you just have to push through because it's part of it too. I like to think that what I am contributing and what I'm trying to pass on to a next generation is actually something I'm not positive how it happens. I really want to change our culture. And I know that's really hard to do. I know shifting culture is like pretty tough thing to do. But if I can add to it in any way, I want to shift our culture towards one that's more respectful of each other, more respectful of our bodies, that has a wider view and that's more inclusive. So that's what I'm hoping to get to do, even if it's in a small way. Well, I think you're going to do it. And I think you're incredibly fascinating. I can't thank you enough for <laughs> for sitting down with me. I can't tell you that when I walked in here that I thought we were going to go to the levels we went to. But I love it when these conversations do that. And we didn't talk as much ballet, I guess, as maybe I would have thought. But that's perfect. That's the best conversation. So thank you so much. This has just been wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you, too. Thanks for having me. Oh, 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 oh,